0: Section 25 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. A Chain of Cities, Part 2. Perugia, too, has an ancient stronghold which one must speak of in earnest, as that unconscious humorist, the classic American traveller, is supposed invariably to speak of the Colosseum, it will be a very handsome building when it is finished. Even Perugia is going the way of all Italy, straightening out her streets, preparing her ruins, laying her venerable ghosts. The castle is being completely remis à neuf. A Massachusetts schoolhouse couldn't cultivate a smarter ideal. There are shops in the basement and fresh putty on all the windows so that the only thing proper to a castle it is kept is its magnificent position and range, which you may enjoy from the broad platform where the Peregini assemble at eventide. Perugia is chiefly known to fame as the city of Raphael's master, but it has a still higher claim to renown and ought to figure in the gazetteer of fond memory as the little city of the infinite view. The small, dusky, crooked place tries by a hundred prompt pretensions, immediate contortions, rich mantling flushes, and other ingenuities to waylay your attention and keep it at home. But your consciousness, alert and uneasy from the first moment, is all abroad, even when your back is turned to the vast alternative, or when fifty house walls conceal it and you are forever rushing up by streets and peeping round corners in the hope of another glimpse or reach of it. As it stretches away before you in that eminent indifference to limits, which is at the same time, at every step, an eminent homage to style, it is altogether too free and fair for compasses and terms. You can only say and rest upon it that you prefer it to any other visible fruit of position, or claimed empire of the eye, that you are anywhere likely to enjoy. For it is such a wondrous mixture of blooming plain and gleaming river and wavelly multitudinous mountain vaguely dotted with pale grey cities, that placed as you are, roughly speaking, in the centre of Italy, you all but span the divine peninsula from sea to sea, the long vista of the Tiber, you look almost to Rome, past Assisi, Spello, Foligno, Spoleto, all perched on their respective heights and shining through the violet haze. To the north, to the east, to the west, you see a hundred variations of the prospect, of which I have kept no record. Two notes only I have made, one, though who hasn't made it over and over again, on the exquisite elegance of mountain forms in this endless play of the excrescence, it being exactly as if there were variations of sex in the upheaved mass, with the effect here, mainly of contour and curve and complexion, determined in the feminine sense. It further came home to me that the command of such an outlook on the world goes far surely to give authority and centrality and experience those of the great seats of dominion, even to so scant a cluster of attesting objects as here. It must deepen the civic consciousness and take off the edge of ennui. It performs this kindly office at any rate for the traveller who may overstay his curiosity as to Perugino and the Etruscan relics. It continually solicits his wonder and praise it reinforces the historic page i spent a week in the place and when it was gone i had had enough of peregino but i hadn't had enough of the view i should perhaps do the reader a service by telling him just how a week at perugia may be spent his first care must be to ignore the very dream of haste walking everywhere very slowly and very much at random and to impute an esoteric sense to almost anything his eye may happen to encounter. Almost everything, in fact, lends itself to the historic, the romantic, the aesthetic fallacy. Almost everything has an antique queerness and richness that ekes out the reduced state that a grim and battered old adventuress the heroine of many shames and scandals surviving to an extraordinary age and a considerable penury but with ancient gifts of princes and other forms of the wages of sin to show and the most beautiful garden of all the world to sit and doze and count her beads in and remember he must hang a great deal about the huge palazzo which indeed is very well worth any acquaintance you may scrape with it it masses itself gloomily above the narrow street to an immense elevation and leads the eye along a cliff-like surface of rugged wall mottled with old scars and new repairs to the lodger dizzily perched on its cornice he must repeat his visit to the etruscan gate by whose immemorial composition he must indeed linger long to resolve it back into the elements originally attending it, he must uncap to the irrevocable, the inimitable style of the statue of Pope Julius III before the Cathedral. Remembering that Hawthorne fabled his Miriam in an air of romance from which we are well nigh as far today as from the building of the Etruscan gates, to have given rendezvous to Kenyon at its base. The material is a vivid green bronze, and the mantle and tiara are covered with a delicate embroidery worthy of a silversmith. Then our leisurely friend must bestow on Perugino's frescoes in the exchange, and on his pictures in the university, all the placid contemplation they deserve. He must go to the theatre every evening in an orchestra chair at 22 zoldi, Enjoy the curious didacticism of Amore senza stima, Severità e Debolezza, La Società Equivoca, and other popular specimens of contemporaneous Italian comedy, unless indeed the last named be not the edifying title applied for Peninsula use to the demi of the younger Dumas. I shall be very much surprised if, at the end of a week of this varied entertainment, he hasn't learnt how to live not exactly in, but with, Perugia. His strolls would abound in small accidents and mercies of vision, but of which a dozen pencil strokes would be a better memento than this poor word-sketching. From the hill on which the town is planted, radiate a dozen ravines. Down whose sides the houses slide and scramble, with an alarming indifference to the cohesion of their little rugged blocks of flinty red stone. You ramble really no whither, without emerging on some small court or terrace that throws your view across a gulf of tangled gardens or vineyards, and over to a cluster of serried black dwellings, which have to hollow in their backs to keep their balance on the opposite ledge. On archways and staircases and dark alleys that bore through the density of massive basements, and curve and climb and plunge as they go, all to the truest medieval tune you may feast your fill. These are the local, the architectural, the compositional commonplaces. Some of the little streets and out-of-the-way corners are so rugged and brown and silent that you may imagine them passages long since hewn by the pickaxe in a deserted stone quarry. The battered black houses, of a colour of buried things, things buried, that is, in accumulations of time, closer packed even as such are than spadefuls of earth, resemble exposed sections of natural rock. Nonetheless, so when beyond some narrow gap you catch the blue and silver of the sublime circle of landscape. But I oughtn't to talk of mouldy alleys, or yet of azure distances as if they formed the main appeal to taste in this accomplished little city. In the Zala del Cambio, where in ancient days the money changers rattled their embossed coin and figured up their profits, you may enjoy one of the serenest aesthetic pleasures that the golden age of art anywhere offers us. Bank parlours, I believe, are always handsomely appointed. But are even those of Mrs Rothschild such models of mural bravery as this little counting-house of a bygone fashion? The bravery is Peregino's own invited clearly to do his best he left it as a lesson to the ages covering the four low walls and the vault with scriptural and mythological figures of extraordinary beauty they arranged in artless attitudes round the upper half of the room the sibyls, the prophets, the philosophers the Greek and Roman heroes looking down with broad, serene faces with small, mild eyes and sweet mouths that commit them to nothing in particular, unless to being comfortably and charmingly alive at these incongruous proceedings of a board of brokers. Had finance a very high tone in those days, or were genius and faith then simply as frequent as capital and enterprise are among ourselves? The great distinction of the Sala del Cambio is. That it has a friendly yes for both these questions there was a rigid transactional probity it seems to say there was also a high tide of inspiration about the artist himself many things come up for us more than i can attempt in their order for he was not i think to an attentive observer the mere smooth and entire and devout spirit we at first are inclined to take him for. He has that about him, which leads us to wonder if he may not, after all, play a proper part enough here as the patron of the money-changers. He is the delight of a million of young ladies, but who knows whether we shouldn't find in his works might we go into them a little, a trifle more of manner than of conviction and of system than of deep sincerity? This Salah would put no great front on them, but one speculates us partly but because it's a pleasure to hang about him on any pretext, and partly because his immediate effect is to make us quite inordinately embrace the pretext of his lovely soul. His portrait, painted on the wall of the Salah, you may see it also in Rome and Florence, might at any rate serve for the likeness of Mr. Worldly Wise Man in Bunyan's Allegory. He was fond of his glass, I believe, and he made his art lucrative. This tradition is not refuted by his preserved face, and after some experience, or rather after a good deal, since you can't have a little of Peregrino, who abounds wherever old masters congregate, so that one has constantly the sense of being in for all there is. You may find an echo of it in the uniform type of his creatures, their monotonous grace, their prodigious invariability. He may very well have wanted to produce figures of a substantial, and yet at the same time, of an impeccable innocence, but we feel that he had taught himself how, even beyond his own belief in them, and had arrived at a process that acted at last mechanically. I confess at the same time that, so interpreted, the painter affects me as hardly less interesting, and one can't but become conscious of one's style when one's style has become, as it were, so conscious of one's, or at least of its own, fortune. If he was the inventor of a remarkably calculable facture, a calculation that never fails is in its way a grace of the first order, and there are things in this special appearance of perfection of practice that make him the forerunner of a mighty and more modern race. More than any of the early painters who strongly charm, you may take all his measure from a single specimen. The other samples infallibly match, reproduce unerringly the one type he had mastered, but which had the good fortune to be adorably fair, to seem to have dawned on a vision unsullied by the shadows of earth. Which truth, moreover, leaves Perugino all delightful as composer and draftsman. He has in each of these characters a sort of spacious neatness which suggests that the whole conception has been washed clean by some spiritual chemistry, the last thing before reaching the canvas, after which it has been applied to that service with a rare economy of time and means. Giotto and Fra Angelica beside him are full of interesting waste and irrelevant passion. In the sacristy of the charming search of San Pietro, a museum of pictures and carvings is a row of small heads of saints formerly covering the frame of the artist's ascension, carried off by the French. It is almost miniature work. And here at least, Perugino triumphs in sincerity, in apparent candour as well as in touch. Two of the holy men are reading their breviaries, but with an air of infantine innocence quite consistent with a holding the book upside down between perugia and cortona lies the large weedy water of lake Trasimene, turned into a witching word forever by hannibal's recorded victory over rome dim as such records have become to us and remote such realities he is yet a passionless pilgrim who doesn't, as he passes of a heavy summer's day, feel the air and the light and the very faintness of the breeze, all charged and haunted with them, all interfused, as with the wasted ache of experience and with the vague historic gaze. Processions of indistinguishable ghosts bore me company to Cortona itself, most sturdily ancient of Italian towns. It must have been a seat of ancient knowledge even when Hannibal and Flaminius came to the shock of battle, and have looked down afar from its grey ramparts on the contending swarm, with something of the philosophic composure suitable to a survivor of pelasgic and Etruscan revolutions. These grey ramparts are in great part still visible, and form the chief attraction of Cortona. It is perched on the very pinnacle of a mountain, and I wound and doubled interminably over the face of the great hill, while the jumbled roofs and towers of the arrogant little city still seemed nearer to the sky than to the railway station. Rather rough, Murray pronounces the local inn, and rough indeed it was. There was scarce a square foot of it that you would have cared to stroke with your hand. The landlord himself, however, was all smoothness and the best fellow in the world. He took me up into a rickety old lodger on the tip-top of his establishment and played showman as to half the kingdoms of the earth. I was free to decide at the same time whether my loss or my gain was the greater for seeing Cortona through the medium of a festa. On the one hand, the museum was closed, and in a certain sense, the smaller and obscurer the town, the more I liked the museum. The churches, an interesting note of manners and morals, were impenetrably crowded. Though for that matter, so was the cafe, where I found neither an empty stool nor the edge of a table. I missed a sight of the famous painted muse, the art treasure of Cortona and supposedly the most precious, as it falls little short of being the only sample of the Greek-painted picture that has come down to us. On the other hand, I saw, but this is what I saw. A part of the mountain top is occupied by the Church of St. Margaret, and this was St. Margaret's Day. The houses pause round about it and leave a grassy slope planted here and there with lean black cypresses the contadini from near and far had congregated in force and were crowding into the church or winding up the slope when i arrived they were all kneeling or uncovered a bedizened procession with banners and censers bearing abroad i believe the relics of the saint was re-entering the church The scene made one of those pictures that Italy still brushes in for you with an incomparable hand and from an inexhaustible palette when you find her in the mood. The day was superb. The sky blazed overhead like a vault of deepest sapphire. The grave brown peasantry, with no great accent of costume, but with sundry small ones, decked, that is, in cheap fineries of scarlet and yellow, made a mass of motley colour in the high wind-stirred light. The procession halted in the pious hush, and the lovely land around beneath us melted away almost to wide the sea in tones of azure, scarcely less intense than the sky. Behind the church was an empty, crumbling citadel, with a half-dozen old women keeping the gate for coppers. Here were views and breezes and sun and shade and grassy corners to the heart's content. Together with, one couldn't say what huge, seated, mystic, melancholy presence, the aftertaste of everything that the still-open moor of time had consumed. I chose a spot that fairly combined all these advantages, a spot from which I seemed to look, as who should say, Straight down the throat of the monster, no dark passage now, with all the glorious day playing into it, and spent a good part of my stay at Cortona lying there at my length and observing the situation over the top of a volume that I must have brought in my pocket just for that especial wanton luxury of the resource provided and slighted in the afternoon i came down and hustled a while through the crowded little streets and then strolled forth under the scorching sun and made the outer circuit of the wall there i found tremendous uncemented blocks they glared and twinkled in the powerful light and i had to put on a blue eyeglass in order to throw into its proper perspective the vague etruscan past obtruded and magnified in such masses, quite as with the effect of inadequately withdrawn hands and feet, in photographs. I spent the next day at Arezzo, but I confess in very much the same uninvestigating fashion, taking in the general impression, I dare say at every pore, but rather systematically leaving the dust of the ages unfingered on the stored records. I should doubtless in the poor time at my command have fingered it to so little purpose. The seeker for the story of things has, moreover, if he be worth his salt, a hundred insidious arts. And in that case, indeed, by which I mean when his sensibility has come duly to adjust itself, the story assaults him but from too many sides. He even feels at moments that he must sneak along on tiptoe in order not to have too much of it. Besides which, the case all depends on the kind of use, the range of application, his tangled consciousness, or his intelligible genius, say, may come to recognise for it. To Rezzo, however this might be, one was far from Rome, one was well within genial Tuscany, and the historic the romantic decoction seemed to reach one's lips in less stiff doses. There at once was the general impression, the exquisite sense of the scarce expressible Tuscan quality, which makes immediately for the whole pitch of one's perception a grateful and not at all strenuous difference. Attaches to almost any coherent group of objects, to any happy aspect of the scene, for a main note, for mild recall, through pleasant, friendly colour, through settled, ample form, through something homely, and economic too, at the very heart of style, of an identity of temperament and habit, with those of the divine little Florence that one originally knew." adorable italy in which with a constant renewal of interest of attention of affection these refinements of variety these so harmoniously grouped and individually seasoned fruits of the great garden of history keep presenting themselves it seemed to fall in with the cheerful tuscan mildness for instance sticking as i do to that ineffectual expression of the tuscan charm of the yellow-brown tuscan dignity at large that the ruined castle on the hill with which agreeable feature arezzo is no less furnished than assisi and cortona had been converted into a great blooming and i hope all profitable podere or market-garden i lounged away the half-hours there under a spell as potent as the wildest forecast of propriety propriety to all the particular conditions, could have figured it. I had seen Santa Maria della Pieve and its campanile of quaint colonnades, the stately dusky cathedral, grass-plotted and residenced about almost after the fashion of an English close, and John of Pisa's elaborate marble shrine. I had seen the museum and its etruscan vases and majolica platters these were all very well but the old pacified citadel somehow through a day of soft saturation placed me most in relation beautiful hills surrounded it cypresses cast straight shadows at its corners while in the middle grew a wondrous italian tangle of wheat and corn vines and figs, peaches and cabbages, memories and images, anything and everything. 1873 End of section 25